0: From Islamic Finance News, the world's leading Islamic finance news provider, this is IFN Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to IFN Podcast. I'm Nisreen from Islamic Finance News, and joining me in this episode are Azman bin Osman Luk and Kelvin Loh, the managing partner and partner respectively at Rahmat Lim and Partners a Malaysian law firm that has been active in the Islamic finance space and particularly in some landmark deals this year. Thank you so much for being here today with us, uh, Mr. Asman and Mr. Kelvin.
1: Thank you, Nisreen. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, good morning, Nisreen. Good morning. Nisreen.
0: Let's talk about the Infracap and solar management Sukuk issuances and uh, Rahmatnim's involvement in it. We want to hear about the highlights of it and especially Because they are such um, complex transactions, Uh, what were the challenges that were involved in developing the deal and how were they overcome?
2: Okay, sure. So uh, that deal, Reed, was Mm -hmm. actually a uh, 15 billion uh, ringgit suku issuance for a special purpose vehicle of the state of Sarawak, which is the largest state in Malaysia, as you might know. Mm-hmm. And basically, it was supposed to uh, fund, or, or is for the funding of strategic assets uh, by the state of as well as uh, development projects by right. the state of Israel. So right from the outset, you know, um, it was very clear that it would be a uh, Sharia compliant issuance. You know, that was a firm requirement from the state,
0: uh-huh.
2: uh, and they're very supportive of the Islamic finance um, market yes. in, in Malaysia. So uh, the difficulty was that not only was it uh, you know, Sharia compliant. Uh, but it also had to be for a whole slew of government development projects and investments across many different sectors, right. all with vastly different completion schedules and all handled by different state agencies or departments or even government-linked bodies. And on top of that, you know, the projects and investments all had to comply with ESG principles under the United Nations Global Compact. So to me, I think probably the hardest part was to bridge the gap between the state government's requirements for flexible funding, which could be swiftly moved from one project to another as required and Mm. to meet challenges in in different projects based on uh, prevailing circumstances and and match that with uh, the traditional project financing concepts which the arrangers came to the table with. Mm. For example, funding against uh, milestones, and against production of certificates and invoices and the like. So fortunately, it was a lot of hard work, and I must say a lot of give and take from all involved. The parties yeah. were actually eventually able to come up with a, a very bespoke structure mm-hmm. that provided the state with the required flexibility, including even the addition of new projects in future, which is quite unusual, mm-hmm. but at the same time affording the Sukuk holders with a required degree of comfort in terms of monitoring the use of proceeds and, and drawdown and the like. So. Uh, you might think of it, I guess, as a sort of hybrid between dedicated uh, single project financing and the general working capital financing. Right.
0: Um, I think it's also interesting you mentioned that, you know, the, a big requirement of theirs was Sharia compliance. Um, this isn't anything new, is it?
2: No, I think uh, if they're going out to the market, uh, there is a general uh, drive towards supporting Islamic finance in Malaysia from the state right. of Israel, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, Anything you want to add, Mr. Kelvin?
1: Perhaps I will speak a little bit about the um, solar management uh, sukuk that we Mm -hmm. we worked on. Mm -hmm. So this was uh, an ASEAN green SRI sukuk. So as the name suggests, um, this sukuk had to comply with the ASEAN green bond standards um, prescribed by the SE as well as the SE's SRI sukuk regime. So um, as a starting point, of course, uh, there was additional compliance required um, to comply with this framework, including things like ring fencing of funds, from the so issuance and a lot of re- the requisite reporting mechanisms uh, needed to be in place. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. So this project was a um, 50 megawatt solar plant in Seremban, in uh, West Malaysia. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually a refinancing of a loan which was used to fund uh, the project at the outset. And um, I think as with any project finance transaction, there are always challenges due to the multitude of parties, uh, many project documents involved yeah. to deal with um, the, the Naga National under the PPA, Um, conditions under the Energy Commission's generation license, etc. But I think one interesting fact is the the land issues that we had to face. Um, We we had a a land acquisition of a portion of the project land uh, right Right. smack in the middle of the deal. And this was basically for construction of power lines which ran through the the upper portion of the land. And um, that that had to be carved out from the the project land itself. So we were doing it uh, in the midst of the movement control order and interest rate travel (laughs) restrictions. We were trying to expedite matters. And I think the, this, this process uh, in a way delayed some of the, um, um, the land title process and the regulatory approvals. But eventually, I think we got through it. Uh, we worked very closely with OCBC Bank uh, as the principal advisor. They were extremely supportive throughout the transaction. Right. And I think in, in deals like this, the difficulty always is um, assessing project risks or legal risks, mm. how the parties can get comfortable with their risks, working yes. out practical solutions, and end of right. the day, and this is very critical, whether we need to make appropriate disclosures to the SC under the lodgement kit, as well as in the information memorandum for investors. So I think that that is one of the, uh, the things we had to, to face during the deal. And I think just to to, to, to uh, complete it, we also had a regular engagement with RAM ratings and RAM sustainability. Mm-hmm. So RAM ratings played a strong role in rating the bonds, and RAM right. sustainability uh, provided the second party second-party opinion. So I think overall, a very fulfilling experience. It took about a year to complete, uh, but we are proud to have closed the deal. And I think hopefully we met all the commercial needs of the, the issuer and the uh, yeah. project as a whole. Yeah. Actually,
0: that's very good considering that the past you know year and a half has been really difficult for everyone. Also, I would like to talk to you about uh, the work that you were involved in to create the template for the, the Asia-Pacific Loan Market Association.
2: Oh, certainly. Uh, why don't I take that, Kelvin? Uh, first of all, a uh, big disclaimer. The person who actually worked on uh, the meet template uh, for Komoriji Murabaha financing was actually my partner, oh. uh, Said Rashid. Okay. Yeah, he, he can't unfortunately be with us today. He He's in another state at the moment.
0: Okay, okay. Um,
2: but yeah, I have... Uh, full authority to speak on his behalf.
0: Okay, that's great. So I hope I, I don't mean, say
2: anything wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yes, we were actually quite privileged to have been approached by the APLMA to help them come up with a uh, template for mm-hmm. commodity warabah transactions mm-hmm. that could actually be used as the basis for syndicated uh, commodity warabah financing in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And we think that actually, you know, in our view, it, it's quite timely. Because as you may be aware, each of the Malaysian banks generally has its own templates for commodity monobah financing, yeah. which is based on the advice of its own share committee. And they're definitely very clear differences between banks, which mm-hmm. can make working on syndicated financing in Malaysia a little bit of a challenge at times. So for example, some banks just simply cannot accommodate single akad mechanics, even right. for term facilities, because their systems are just not set up for it. So when drafting, you know, Rashid actually had to make sure that the documentation accommodated multiple akads for multiple term drawdowns. Of course. Yeah. And uh, as an, another example, um, some banks are much more liberal in their Sharia approach towards, for example, imposing break fees for early settlement, or for example, um, combining letters of agency with letters of undertaking to repay, or, or even uh, the concept of using uh, Tawid against late payment charges. Okay. So the template that resulted actually had to accommodate all of these different uh, requirements. And the biggest challenge was settling on these mecha- uh, mechanisms and, and terms without creating a Frankenstein's monster in the process. So if you ever get, you know, when you get to see the, the template in due course, um, you will actually see that there's, there, there are a lot of comments and uh, footnotes to enable the banks to, to choose what's appropriate. And hopefully okay. the working group uh, succeeded in, in the process. And I must say it was a collaborative approach not just between the member banks uh, in Malaysia, but also uh, some other law firms as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly there is a need for a unified template. How long did it take to develop this?
2: Many, many months. (laughs) Of course. Many, many drafts, yes. So, yeah, we produced the first one, and then it went around and came back again and went out again quite a few times.
0: Right. Okay. I think it's good now for us to go into what I'm going to say, like what your market predictions are or what is your outlook for for specifically the Islamic finance and banking sector um, in terms of like, what do you think uh, are the trends that are happening right now and what can we look forward to or what can we expect in the, in the near future?
1: So I think just uh, in the context of uh, green finance and sustainability finance, um, huh. We can see that in the last maybe year or two, the, the bulk of the green projects, uh, about 70% also I think they relate to pretty much solar solar farms yeah. and green buildings, and mostly solar farms, um, especially with the LSS, the large scale solar projects, right? right? And now we have LSS 4 underway. Whereas if you look at Singapore with limited uh, land bank, most of their projects relate to green buildings, right? So I think one of the comments from Malaysian regulators and the industry as a whole, is I think they they want to see a more diversified nature of projects funded by Green Bonds and Green Sukuk. So I think on our side, we're hoping in the next maybe five to ten years um, to see maybe a bit more green buildings, um, water conservation, biomass, or even like social bonds coming into the picture, involving sectors like education, healthcare, um, Mm. housing, for example. So I think that's one trend which I I may be foresee in the next five years. Moving, of course, solar will still be strong, but moving, to a bit more of a diversified nature of projects, gotcha. And I think um, just another point would be green green financings and sustainable financings are pretty much um, still at its infancy in, in Malaysia, and okay. uh, we definitely see strong growth over the long term. And I would like just to highlight two key drivers um, that we have observed from I mean in, in the market. Yes. The the first is um, overall awareness of climate change and um, the importance of CSR, not just CSR but uh, not not just reporting on, on your in the annual report, your sustained statements, but um, mm-hmm. what, what we, we hear from my litigation colleagues as climate change litigation. Um, okay. What we're trying to say is that corporates are no longer just exposed to an environmental fine. Like say you, you, you uh, discharge some illegal pollutants to the river, you get fined by the government under the DOE. Th- that's a given. But yeah. what we are seeing uh, internationally is essentially human rights groups, NGOs, taking action against governments, to stop projects at the outset. So this is not not like a project has been completed and we breach a law. It is the whole project itself could be questioned. So one example, just to quote, was in Australia, there was a coal mine and uh, there was a a group which tried to seek an injunction to stop the minister from approving the coal mine project. And the the ground given was um, the future impact on increasing global surface temperatures and impact on Australian children. Something quite quite general, Mm. uh, but important. Of so I, I don't think they, they got the injunction in that case. But basically, the, the trend you're seeing internationally, at least, is um, projects have to be assessed right, uh, for long-term environmental compliance at the outset.
0: Right. And, uh, and,
1: and this, this may hit Malaysia at some point, although we have not seen any actual cases yet in mm. Malaysia. So that, that's the first uh, driver. And the okay. second driver uh, we're seeing is regulator push. So you may have heard of the JT3, the Joint mm-hmm. Committee on Climate Change, spearheaded by the SC and BNM. It was mm-hmm. actually a conference, uh, I think, uh, in early part of this year. And I think the main objective is to strengthen the financial sector's capacity to manage climate risk. And pursuant to this, BNM issued the CCPT called the uh, Climate Change and Principle-Based Taxonomy in uh, right. was it April this year. And essentially, um, driving financial institutions in Malaysia as the champions for climate change mitigation. So that's, right. that's the BNM side. And within the SC, you probably know that uh, they already have the SRI framework since 2014. Yes. There's even an SRI taxonomy being uh, uh-huh. had, a very robust framework. So I think, I mean, my personal experience in my 20 years plus of banking, I have not seen such a concerted effort by Malaysian regulators to push for a greener economy and to gradually support and to transition corporates, right? Uh, to change the way they do business towards right. uh, more sustainable practices. So. Currently, regulators, uh, I think they're taking a more softer, more facilitative, incentive-based type of approach. We see lots of uh, tax incentives. But Mm -hmm. as time progresses and as society's expectations grow, then these regulations will get tighter. So I think corporations have to be prepared and take steps now to uh, basically comply and try to do what's best um, for the environment and uh, for sustainability. Yeah. And a final point, I think just just to add within our firm itself, I can say that um, I think Asman also had a discussion earlier, Within the past two years, the total deal value of our financing transactions involving green or sustainability elements comprised, I think, more than half of our total financing deal value. So that's mm. quite major compared to our past 10 years. So maybe it's a good time to pass on to Azban just to elaborate further on, uh, on this.
2: Okay. Thanks. Well, uh, to be honest, Calvin, I think you've uh, said it out so well. I don't think I've got very much to add. But perhaps just uh, to say that, you know, I think I agree with you completely that, ESG is going to be uh, a very dominant factor uh, in years to come. And uh, I think I would welcome that particularly because it's not just, I think, completely in line with Sharia principles, but also our own firm policies. So it's definitely something that we support going forward. And we like to think of ourselves as as partners with the financial institutions and the corporations Mm -hmm. on their, you know, Islamic ESG journey. Um, in terms of developments for Malaysia, if I, if I might um, perhaps raise something a little bit more prosaic. I think Kelvin's captured the big picture very well. Mm. Um, for my part, one of the developments that I hope will occur over the next few years, and definitely not overnight, but you know, uh, over time, is that the documentation for Sharia financing in Malaysia, which I guess we might now think of as being in the second generation, Okay. Uh, that will increase in sophistication and quality into what we may perhaps term as a third generation. Right. So you had the first generation when Islamic finance basically first took off and, and structures were quite clumsy and drafting perhaps wasn't perfect. And then you moved on as, as things got more and more refined. But that documentation is still you know, fairly old fashioned. Um, mm. It's specific to particular financial institutions. So I think we will generally, overall, I'm not just talking about the APLA template but also, you know, a general change in drafting style, perhaps more plain English, for example, uh, concepts being explained in more detail, structures structures being more refined as well. Mm-hmm. So I think we are actually ripe to see a third generation of Islamic finance and documentation make its presence felt in the market.
0: Okay. That's very encouraging. Excellent. That's our time then. Um, thank you so much again for being here. It was a pleasure speaking to both of you. That's
1: great. Thanks, Nasreen. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Nasreen.
0: Thank you for listening. For more discussions on the Islamic finance industry, log on to www.islamicfinancenews.com. You can also listen to IFN Podcast on your favorite platforms, including iTunes and Spotify.